This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Leader, Bloomington, Illinois. History of England from the Accession of James II by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 7, Part 11. In June 1687, Dykvelt returned to The Hague. He presented to the States General a royal epistle filled with eulogies of his conduct during his residence in London. These eulogies, however, were merely formal. James, in private communications written with his own hand, bitterly complained that the envoy had lived in close intimacy with the most factious men in the realm, and had encouraged them in all their evil purposes. Dykveld carried with him also a packet of letters from the most eminent of those with whom he had conferred during his stay in England. The writers generally expressed unbounded reverence and affection for William, and referred him to the bearer for fuller information as to their views. Halifax discussed the state and prospects of the country with his usual subtlety and vivacity, but took care not to pledge himself to any perilous line of conduct. Danby wrote in a bolder and more determined tone, and could not refrain from slyly sneering at the fears and scruples of his accomplished rival. But the most remarkable letter was from Churchill. It was written with that natural eloquence which, illiterate as he was, he never wanted on great occasions, and with an air of magnanimity which, perfidious as he was, he could with singular dexterity assume. The Princess Anne, he said, had commanded him to assure her illustrious relatives at the Hague that she was fully resolved by God's help rather to lose her life than to be guilty of apostasy. As for himself, his places and the royal favor were as nothing to him in comparison with his religion. He concluded by declaring in lofty language that, though he could not pretend to have lived the life of a saint, he should be found ready, on occasion, to die the death of a martyr. Dykvelt's mission had succeeded so well that a pretense was soon found for sending another agent to continue the work which had been so auspiciously commenced. The new envoy, afterwards the founder of a noble English house which became extinct in our own time, was an illegitimate cousin German of William, and bore a title taken from the lordship of Zulstein. Zulstein's relationship to the House of Orange gave him importance in the public eye. His bearing was that of a gallant soldier. He was indeed in diplomatic talents and knowledge far inferior to Dykvelt, but even this inferiority had its advantages. A military man, who had never appeared to trouble himself about political affairs, could, without exciting any suspicion, hold with the English aristocracy an intercourse which, if he had been a noted master of state craft, would have been jealously watched. Zulstein, after a short absence, returned to his country, charged with letters and verbal messages not less important than those which had been entrusted to his predecessor. A regular correspondence was from this time established between the prince and the opposition. Agents of various ranks passed and repassed between the Thames and the Hague. Among these, a Scotchman, of some parts and great activity, named Johnstone, was the most useful. He was cousin of Burnett, and son of an eminent covenanter, who had, soon after the Restoration, been put to death for treason, 
and who was honoured by his party as a martyr. The estrangement between the King of England and the Prince of Orange became daily more complete. A serious dispute had arisen concerning the six British regiments which were in the pay of the United Provinces. The King wished to put these regiments under the command of Roman Catholic officers. The Prince resolutely opposed this design. The King had recourse to his favourite commonplaces about toleration. The Prince replied that he only followed His Majesty's example. It was notorious that loyal and able men had been turned out of office in England merely for being Protestants. It was then surely competent to the Stadtholder and the States-General to withhold high public trust from Papists. This answer provoked James to such a degree that, in his rage, he lost sight of veracity and common sense. It was false, he vehemently said, that he had ever turned out anybody on religious grounds, and if he had, what was that to the prince or to the states? Were they his masters? Were they to sit in judgment on the conduct of foreign sovereigns? From that time he became desirous to recall his subjects who were in the Dutch service. By bringing them over to England he should, he conceived, at once strengthen himself and weaken his worst enemies. But there were financial difficulties which it was impossible for him to overlook. The number of troops already in his service was as great as his revenue, though large beyond all precedent, and though parsimoniously administered, would support. If the battalions now in Holland were added to the existing establishment, the treasury would be bankrupt. Perhaps Lewis might be induced to take them into his service. They would in that case be removed from a country where they were exposed to the corrupting influence of a republican government and a Calvinistic worship and would be placed in a country where none ventured to dispute the mandates of the sovereign or the doctrines of the true church. The soldiers would soon unlearn every political and religious heresy. Their native prince might always, at short notice, command their help, and would, on any emergency, be able to rely on their fidelity. A negotiation on this subject was opened between Whitehall and Versailles. Lewis had as many soldiers as he wanted, and had it been otherwise, he would not have been disposed to take Englishmen into his service, for the pay of England, low as it must seem to our generation, was much higher than the pay of France. At the same time, it was a great object to deprive William of so fine a brigade. After some weeks of correspondence, Berion was authorized to promise that, if James would recall the British troops from Holland, Lewis would bear the charge of supporting two thousand of them in England." This offer was accepted by James with warm expressions of gratitude. Having made these arrangements, he requested the States-General to send back the six regiments. The States-General, completely governed by William, answered that such a demand, in such circumstances, was not authorized by the existing treaties, and positively refused to comply. It is remarkable that Amsterdam, which had voted for keeping these troops in Holland when James needed their help against the Western insurgents, now contended vehemently that his request ought to be granted. On both occasions the sole object of those who ruled that great city was to cross the Prince of Orange. The Dutch arms, however, were scarcely so formidable to James as the Dutch presses. English books and pamphlets against his government were daily printed at The Hague nor could any vigilance prevent copies from being smuggled, by tens of thousands, into the counties bordering on the German Ocean. 
Among these publications, one was distinguished by its importance, and by the immense effect which it produced. The opinion which the Prince and Princess of Orange held respecting the indulgence was well known to all who were conversant with public affairs. But, as no official announcement of that opinion had appeared, many persons who had not access to good private sources of information were deceived or perplexed by the confidence with which the partisans of the court asserted that their highnesses approved of the king's late acts. To contradict those assertions publicly would have been a simple and obvious course, if the sole object of William had been to strengthen his interest in England. But he considered England chiefly as an instrument necessary to the execution of his great European design. Toward that design, he hoped to obtain the cooperation of both branches of the House of Austria, of the Italian princes, and even the sovereign pontiff. There was reason to fear that any declaration which was satisfactory to British Protestants would excite alarm and disgust at Madrid, Vienna, Turin, and Rome. For this reason, the prince long abstained from formally expressing his sentiments. At length it was represented to him that his continued silence had excited much uneasiness and distress among his well-wishers, and that it was time to speak out. He therefore determined to explain himself. A Scotch Whig, named James Stuart, had fled some years before to Holland in order to avoid the boot and the gallows, and had become intimate with the grand pensionary Fagel, who enjoyed a large share of the stadtholder's confidence and favor. By Stuart had been drawn up the violent and acrimonious manifesto of Argyle. When the indulgence appeared, Stuart conceived that he had an opportunity of obtaining not only pardon, but reward. He offered his services to the government of which he had been the enemy. They were accepted, and he addressed to Fagel a letter purporting to have been written by the direction of James. In that letter, the pensionary was exhorted to use all his influence with the prince and princess, for the purpose of inducing them to support their father's policy. After some delay, Fagel transmitted a reply, deeply meditated, and drawn up with exquisite art. No person who studies that remarkable document can fail to perceive that, though it is framed in a manner well calculated to reassure and delight English Protestants, it contains not a word which would give offence even at the Vatican. It was announced that William and Mary would, with pleasure, assist in abolishing every law which made any Englishman liable to punishment for his religious opinions. But between punishments and disabilities a distinction was taken. To admit Roman Catholics to office would, in the judgment of their highnesses, be neither for the general interest of England, nor even for the interest of the Roman Catholics themselves. This manifesto was translated into several languages, and circulated widely on the continent. Of the English version, carefully prepared by Burnett, nearly fifty thousand copies were introduced into the eastern shires, and rapidly distributed over the whole kingdom. No state paper was ever more completely successful. The Protestants of our island applauded the manly firmness with which William declared that he could not consent to entrust papists with any share in the government. The Roman Catholic princes, on the other hand, were pleased by the mild and temperate style in which his resolution was expressed, and by the hope which he held out that, under his administration, no member of their church would be molested on account of religion. 
It is probable that the Pope himself was among those who read this celebrated letter with pleasure. He had some months before dismissed Castlemaine in a manner which showed little regard for the feelings of Castlemaine's master. Innocent thoroughly disliked the whole domestic and foreign policy of the English government. He saw that the unjust and impolitic measures of the Jesuitical cabal were far more likely to make the penal laws perpetual than to bring about an abolition of the test. His quarrel with the court of Versailles was every day becoming more and more serious. Nor could he, either in his character of temporal prince or in his character of sovereign pontiff, feel cordial friendship for a vassal of that court. Castlemaine was ill-qualified to remove these disgusts. He was indeed well acquainted with Rome, and was, for a layman, deeply read in theological controversy. But he had none of the address which his post required, and, even had he been a diplomatist of the greatest ability, there was a circumstance which would have disqualified him for the particular mission on which he had been sent. He was known all over Europe as the husband of the most shameless of women, and he was known in no other way. It was impossible to speak to him or of him without remembering in what manner the very title by which he was called had been acquired. This circumstance would have mattered little if he had been accredited to some dissolute court, such as that in which the Marchioness of Montespan had lately been dominant. But there was an obvious impropriety in sending him on an embassy rather of a spiritual than of a secular nature to a pontiff of primitive austerity. The Protestants all over Europe sneered, and Innocent, already unfavorably disposed to the English government, considered the compliment which had been paid him, at so much risk and at so heavy a cost, as little better than an affront. The salary of the ambassador was fixed at a hundred pounds a week. Castlemaine complained that this was too little. Thrice the sum, he said, would hardly suffice. For at Rome the ministers of all the great continental powers exerted themselves to surpass one another in splendor, under the eyes of a people whom the habit of seeing magnificent buildings, decorations, and ceremonies had made fastidious. He always declared that he had been a loser by his mission. He was accompanied by several young gentlemen of the best Roman Catholic families in England, Ratcliffe's, Arundel's, and Tishburne's. At Rome he was lodged in the palace of the house of Pamphili, on the south of the stately place of Navona. He was early admitted to a private interview with Innocent, but the public audience was long delayed. Indeed, Castlemaine's preparations for that great occasion were so sumptuous that, though commenced at Easter 1686, they were not complete till the following November. And in November the Pope had, or pretended to have, an attack of gout which caused another postponement. In January 1687, at length, the solemn introduction and homage were performed with unusual pomp. The state coaches, which had been built at Rome for the pageant, were so superb that they were thought worthy to be transmitted to posterity in fine engravings and to be celebrated by poets in several languages. The front of the ambassador's palace was decorated on this great day with absurd allegorical paintings of gigantic size. There was St. George with his foot on the neck of Titus Carus, and Hercules with his club crushing College, the Protestant joiner, who in vain attempted to defend himself with his flail. 
After this public appearance, Castlemaine invited all the persons of note then assembled at Rome to a banquet in that gay and splendid gallery which is adorned with paintings of subjects from the Aeneid by Peter of Cortona. The whole city crowded to the show, and it was with difficulty that a company of Swiss guards could keep order among the spectators. The nobles of the pontifical state in return gave costly entertainments to the ambassador, and poets and wits were employed to lavish on him and his master insipid and hyperbolical adulation, such as flourishes most when genius and taste are in the deepest decay. Foremost among the flatterers was a crowned head. More than thirty years had elapsed since Christina, the daughter of the great Gustavus, had voluntarily descended from the Swedish throne. After long wanderings, in the course of which she had committed many follies and crimes, she had finally taken up her abode at Rome, where she busied herself with astrological calculations and with the intrigues of the conclave, and amused herself with pictures, gems, manuscripts, and medals. She now composed some Italian stanzas in honor of the English prince who, sprung, like herself, from a race of kings heretofore regarded as the champions of the Reformation, had, like herself, been reconciled to the ancient church. A splendid assembly met in her palace. Her verses, set to music, were sung with universal applause and one of her literary dependents pronounced an oration on the same subject in a style so florid that it seems to have offended the taste of the English hearers. The Jesuits, hostile to the Pope, devoted to the interests of France and disposed to pay every honor to James, received the English embassy with the utmost pomp in that princely house where the remains of Ignatius Loyola lined enshrined in lazulite and gold. Sculpture, painting, poetry, and eloquence were employed to compliment the strangers, but all these arts had sunk into deep degeneracy. There was a great display of turgid and impure latinity unworthy of so erudite an order, and some of the inscriptions, which adorned the walls, had a fault more serious than even a bad style. It was said in one place that James had sent his brother as his messenger to heaven, and in another that James had furnished the wings with which his brother had soared to a higher region. There was a still more unfortunate distich, which at the time attracted little notice, but which, a few months later, was remembered and malignantly interpreted. O king, said the poet, cease to sigh for a son. Though nature may refuse your wish, the stars will find a way to grant it. In the midst of these festivities, Castlemaine had to suffer cruel mortifications and humiliations. The Pope treated him with extreme coldness and reserve. As often as the ambassador pressed for an answer to the request which he had been instructed to make in favor of Peter, Innocent was taken with a violent fit of coughing, which put an end to the conversation. The fame of these singular audiences spread over Rome. Pasquin was not silent. All the curious and tattling population of the idlest of cities, the Jesuits and the prelates of the French faction, only accepted, laughed at Castlemaine's discomfiture. His temper, naturally unamiable, was soon exasperated to violence, and he circulated a memorial reflecting on the Pope. He had now put himself in the wrong. The sagacious Italian had got the advantage, and took care to keep it. He positively declared 
that the rule which excluded Jesuits from ecclesiastical preferment should not be relaxed in favor of Father Peter. Castlemaine, much provoked, threatened to leave Rome. Innocent replied, with a meek impertinence which was the more provoking because it could scarcely be distinguished from simplicity, that his excellency might go if he liked. But if we must lose him, added the venerable pontiff, I hope that he will take care of his health on the road. English people do not know how dangerous it is in this country to travel in the heat of day. The best way is to start before dawn and to take some rest at noon. With this salutary advice, and with a string of beads, the unfortunate ambassador was dismissed. In a few months appeared, both in the Italian and in the English tongue, a pompous history of the mission, magnificently printed in folio, and illustrated with plaints. The frontispiece, to the great scandal of all Protestants, represented Castlemaine in the robes of a peer, with his coronet in his hand, kissing the toe of Innocent. End of Part 11 End of Chapter 7